want to welcome you again to Door Creek Church. My name's Mark. If you're a guest here today, whether you're up north in the forest, across the way in the chapel, right here, so glad to have you with us today. So the pastors, the uh, directors, and our spouses are away this weekend in Lake Geneva for our annual retreat. Thanks for uh, encouraging us, praying for a great time of refreshment and unity around the word together. And then a quick word of just kind of joy and sharing in our joy. So you've heard the news that, that we're grandparents and little Henry Asher. I had a chance to see him last week and hold him in my arms. And wow, what great joy it is to welcome this little guy into our family. Thanks for your prayers. He is going to need some heart surgery in the days to come, but he's doing great right now, and we are so excited to be grandparents. So we're continuing in our series, The Storyline. We're coming into this series now on the life of David, who is a man after God's own heart. We're calling this series A Heart for God. Last week, we focused on humility, and this week on patience. So let's talk about patience. On a scale of one to 10, how's the old patience meter doing? Are you up there in the sevens and eights or is it more like the twos and threes? And what is it right now that is wearing your patience thin? For me, I'm like, uh, I don't know, I feel like I sometimes say I was born caffeinated. And so faster is how I love it and slow is really hard and slow lines is like super hard. So is that what wears your patience then? The lines at the grocery store, at the restaurant, the traffic light, you know, just the waiting for your computer to connect or Netflix to finally go on at home. Where is it where you find waiting really hard? Is it at work? You're waiting for that promotion. Are you just being tested by this person, this gal, this guy that drives you crazy? Is your patience being worn thin as you wait to just find a great friend or this friend to become a friend for life? You know what I mean? Maybe it's your newborn baby who's keeping you up at night and it's wearing your patience thin. Or somebody's saying, man, I would love to have a baby that would cry all night long just to hold this child in my arms. Where is it? A strained relationship to move in the right direction? Well, if there's ever someone in the Bible whose patience should have, could have been worn threadbare thin, it's David. It's David before he is crowned king. So imagine this, you, um, you've applied for the school of your dreams and you get the letter of acceptance and it says, welcome to the class of 2036. You go, 2036? Yeah, you'll be a freshman 15 years from now in 2032. You're going, that's nuts. Imagine buying a house, your dream house, and signing the paperwork only to find out you can't get occupancy for another 15 years or a dream job. And you sign the contract and you ask the question, so when do I start? And they say, well, actually, we don't need you till 2032, 15 years from now. We go, that's just nuts. What are you talking about? I'm talking about that's how long it likely took from David being anointed as king to David becoming the king of Israel. Scholars tell us he was probably only 14 or 15 
when he was anointed king. But it wasn't until he was 30, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, that he becomes king over all Israel. So get this. He's anointed the next king, but he doesn't become king for 15 years. Wow. And why is it that he would be the next king? Because the first king, Saul, was impatient. He was a man after the people's choosing, right? We want a king like all the other nations, a big, strong, tall guy. And man, did he start well. There was humility, there was bravery, and yet he had all the looks. But man, did it unravel quick when in his insecurity, he, he, he exposed his heart to all kinds of harmful things. It was like insecurity was the chink, the crack in the armor, the crack in his own heart that allowed these other things like jealousy and bitterness and hatred and even vengeance to come in. And in short order, Saul's impatience cost him the throne. Today, I, I want us to consider something that we've probably never thought about before is what does our impatience cost us? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, 23, you see it on the slide. God says through the prophet Samuel to Saul, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king because you didn't wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifices, because you didn't destroy the Amalekites and, and saved King Agag's life, you, you've been rejected because you've rejected me. You've rejected my word. And so enter David, the one that Samuel was to anoint. Remember God said, hey, Samuel, I've rejected Saul, but I'm going to show you who's the next king. I want you to go to Jesse's house. I want you to crown one of his king, one of his sons, to anoint him to be this next king. And so he goes to Jesse's house and says, get your sons together. And they had some really good looking would-be kings. And God kept saying, don't look on the outside. I want you to find the one who has the right heart. I'm looking for a man after my heart, a man who has a heart for me. And you're looking on the outward externals of things, but I look at the heart. So he goes through the whole lineup. He says, not here. <laughs> Samuel says, Jesse, is there any chance you got another son? Because God's telling me he's not one of these sons. He says, actually, now that I think about it, yeah, Davy's out in the back four and he's taking care of the sheep. He's the man after God's own heart, the one that his father forgot to bring to the party, the one that, had he been in the lineup, Samuel would have never chosen him. And as we look at David and focus in on his patience, his heart for God that is marked not only by humility, but by great patience, we want to consider these three things. What David had to endure, the sufferings that he had to endure, not just how long, but the kinds of things that he had to endure. And then how did he endure them? And where were the temptations for him to not act in patience? And then finally, what is the secret? What are the marks of patience? So first, what he had to endure. A heart for God is a patient heart that endures suffering. 
1 Samuel chapter 18. Grab your Bible. So we're in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the history section. First and Second Samuel before First and Second Kings. You got it. First Samuel chapter eighteen. As you're turning there, let me just kind of give you a little bit of context here. Chapter sixteen and seventeen, probably a little out of chronology because it doesn't make sense that in chapter seventeen, when he comes on the scene to kill Goliath, that Saul doesn't know who he is. When in chapter sixteen, he's a court musician that has been hired to soothe this king who is being tormented by this evil spirit that God has allowed to come in to get Saul's attention, right? And, and so in chapter 16, he's this brave man. He's this handsome man. He's this man that the, the officials of Saul say, God is with this man, and he's a great musician. And his singing, his psalms, his songs are going to soothe you, and they do. And he's part of the entourage. He's his armor bearer. Chapter 17, he frees Israel from the Philistines by killing the, the giant Goliath, right? And then in chapter 18, we read this. And we, and we pick up the story um, in, chapter six, in chapter 18, verse 6. And this kind of gives us a sense of where Saul's insecurity moves to jealousy and then to hatred and then to this, you got to wipe this guy, David, out. Verse 6 of chapter 18. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang this song. Saul has slain his thousands, and David tens of thousands. Here's what it says. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He was suspicious. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house. He was worshiping God while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So all, all of a sudden here, we see what's going on is this, this king that he's serving, this king that he's loyal to, this king that he literally has saved his life through the battle with Goliath has, is turning on him. He's trying literally to kill him. Twice it says in that chapter, in chapter 19, we read this. Well, actually back in chapter 18, we go just right on the heels of that in verses 13 and following. In chapter 18, verse 13, he says, okay, I, I missed him with the spear, but I'm going to send him in the battle, and hopefully he'll be killed as he continues to fight the Philistines. Well, that didn't work. Then he says, here's another idea. I'm going to let him marry my daughter, Michael, and I'm going to say the price for my daughter, the dowry, so to speak, is going to be 100 foreskins, meaning you got to kill 100 Philistines. David goes and kills 200 Philistines. Verse 29, 
of chapter 18. Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Go to chapter 19. Saul tells Jonathan, this is his son, the heir to the throne, right, who's become a close friend with David, his dad's arch enemy. He tells Jonathan, his son, and all those in his courts, they got to kill David. Jonathan tries to dissuade his father, but once again, Saul tries to kill him. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. So you can kind of, toing, it's still in the wall, and like David is out of there. That night, David made good his escape. Men are sent to his house to watch that night. Michael knows what's going on. She says, you got to run tonight. She lowers him down at the window in the morning. They say, we got to get, they go knocking on the door. Michael, give us your husband. King Saul wants David. She says, oh, he's really sick. Really sick? They go back, yeah, he's sick, King. King says, go get him. Just break his whole bed here. They go in and find out that he's not in the bed. There's an idol that Michael's put there to deceive the men into thinking that David was still there, but he's on the loose. Chapter 20, Jonathan's son, Saul. Jonathan, Saul's son, says to his dad, Dad, come on. He's a good guy. He's faithful. What are you doing? And he is so mad, Saul is so mad that he tries to kill his own son at that point for siding with David. And it's from that point on in the story that David is a fugitive, a man on the run for years. Can you imagine being on the run for a year, let alone 10, maybe more, for the most powerful man in the land, the most wanted person in all of Israel. Well, that's, that's his title now. Not the heir apparent, not the soon-to-be king, the, the guy who's got a target on his back. And the guy who has the most resources is going to hunt him down like a wild animal. Chapter 21, he's on the run. He goes and sees the priest Ahimelech. In chapter 22, he's hiding in the cave of Adullam, then to Mitzpah and Moab, then to Keilah. And it says in chapter 23, 13, and 14, he's just running from place to place. Can you imagine the emotional wear or tear of going, is it going to be today? Is his army going to capture me and my men and take my life? From chapter 24 all the way through the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, David is on the run all the way until Saul dies in his battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And it's not until chapter 2 of 2 Samuel verse 4 that David becomes king. But even at that point, he's only king over the tribe of Judah. It'll be another two years before Ishbosheth, Saul's other son, is killed and he becomes king over all Israel. 
So think about it. It's a long time that he is enduring patiently suffering. The physical suffering, the mental anguish, that this whole colliding of this doesn't make sense. I've been loyal. I'm faithful. I've had an opportunity to take this king's life, but I haven't done it. And yet I'm being pursued and he wants to kill me. This one who has handed the crown and his armband right after, after Saul's been killed on Mount Gilboa, and he refuses it. He, he doesn't want to seize until God gives him the crown and the throne, the torment in his soul. And I'm thinking, well, that, that is so true, isn't it? Right? To human experience if we've been close to somebody and, and they've turned on us. This is like so much like real life. I mean, for a lot of us, it's just gone on for years, right? Someone who was close and has become just really against you, your, your chief enemy, and it doesn't make sense, and they're out to ruin your life. So when we think about how long he suffered, we also want to remember what he suffered and the different kinds of suffering that he had physically, emotionally, spiritually as he was enduring suffering patiently as a man who had a heart for God. So how did he do it? What did it look like for him to endure patiently. And, and when was he close to just saying, no way, I'm not going to do it? Because there's a story about that too. A patient heart not only endures suffering, but a patient heart refuses to go on the path of revenge. And that's one of the things we see. Twice, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Go to chapter 24. The setting here is that uh, Saul has heard that he's down in En Gedi, beautiful place, I've been there, and this kind of in the middle of the wilderness, there's this little oasis and water running down the, the cliffs, and he's hiding out in the caves there, and, and Saul goes into a cave, the text says to relieve himself, that is, that's right, a little potty stop there, he's in the cave, what he doesn't know is David and his men are in the cave. And David and his men say, God has delivered your enemy into your own hand. Take him out. Take him out. Chapter 24, read it, verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. 
See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Wow. It was right there. There's another time where David and one of his men sneak into the camp where Saul and his men were camped out that night. And the text says a heavy sleep fell upon them from God. They, sn they snuck in. They grabbed his spear and his water jug that was just right up over his head. And they sneak back to the other side of the ravine. And that morning they call out. David does, and says, hey, where, where are your bodyguards? And king, I just want you to know I had the opportunity. Here's your spear, here's your jug, but I didn't lay a hand on you. Enduring patiently is all about refusing to get even, rejecting the notion that it'll feel good, they deserve it, and I'm just gonna go after them and give them their just desserts, right? No, not patient, not a heart after God. Now, there's a near failure. It's all about chapter 25. It's a guy named Nabal who's got all these flocks that when David was hiding out in his part of the country, David and his men were always taking care of Nabal's shepherds and making sure nothing bad happened to them. They were like a wall around them Nabal's servants said, protecting the men and the sheep. And when it was time to have a celebration, David was saying, hey, can you share some of your celebration with my men? We're not with our people. We don't have this kind of provision. And will you do it? And Nabal, whose name means a fool, says, who's David? I'm not going to do that. And David is incensed. He says to 40, 400 of his men, strap on your swords. Meaning, guys, we're going to battle. And we're going to take out every guy that works for Nabal, including Nabal. So word gets out to Nabal's wife, Abigail, that this is what's going down. And she quickly prepares a feast and intercepts David as he's coming with his 400 men to wipe out the men of her family and people group. And she appeases his wrath and appeals to him not to do this. And he doesn't. He avoids needless bloodshed. And a few days later, Nabal is struck dead. And here's what David says to Abigail, 1 Samuel 25, 32. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Man, he, he, he didn't. He was tempted, but he didn't. Why didn't he do it? Because he, he was open to wise counsel. And that's one of the things we'll notice about David. He's always seeking the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. So unlike Saul, who's always rejecting the word of the Lord and has a better idea on how to run things. So what's the secret? What are the marks of patience? 
There's a psalm, many psalms of David, but Psalm 27, I think, gives us great insight into David's heart and into why it is that he could operate out of patience to endure suffering for years. Here's a few excerpts from Psalm 27. It's a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I just want to keep that screen, that slide up just for a moment here. I want us to just look at these things. He, he believed God alone was his refuge and strength. So he hid out in caves, like at Adullam, like in the caves up in, in Gedi. He had fighting men that were brave and valiant, but that wasn't his security. It wasn't about a place. It wasn't about a force. It was about who God was in his relationship with God. He's his strength. He's his refuge. He believed in the midst of suffering that even if wicked people seem to be winning, that in the end, they're going to topple and stumble and fall. That God would elevate him to his rightful place. He asked God to teach him to keep his feet on the straight and narrow because he knew the temptation would be to let his emotions rule to let his impulse rule him. But he wanted God's truth to guide him so he wouldn't take matters in his own hands like he almost did with Nabal, right? He was confident too that God was good and that he would see the goodness of God in this day, in this life. And though the promises haven't been realized and he hasn't tasted them all, he knew it was just a matter of time for God's promises to come true, that he would be exalted, that he would become not just the anointed king, but the crown king who's ruling over God's people. Psalm 27. You read through the account of David, you realize there's a few other things his friendship with Jonathan, like that's a whole other awesome message. That's a huge part of what kept him enduring suffering when it was hard. It was the encouragement of a good friend. So I'm just wondering if there's anybody listening to me today who has a Saul in your life. Maybe it's now. Maybe it was a long time ago. How, how, how are you dealing with that? What are we learning from David here? I, I'm wondering if there's anybody who has these Saul-like tendencies 
where the, the insecurity of our own lives, because we haven't found it in Christ, has opened our hearts up to jealousy and to bitterness and to hatred and an unforgiving spirit and a vengeful attitude. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 12. Reading in verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. That's what this whole sermon's about, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Bless those who persecute. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with most people. Is that what it says? No. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's God's, God deals with justice. God will right all wrongs. Leave that in God's hand. We're going to get it goofed up if we try to execute justice here on earth. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is exactly what we see Jesus Christ doing in the moment of his extreme suffering, when his enemies mocked up this kind of coronation, right? This kind of crowning. And remember, they put the robe on him and they pressed the crown of thorns in him and they spat at him and they nailed him to a cross and he cried out, Father, forgive them. And the one who would betray him, Judas, he calls him friend, And this is at the heart of what marks a patient heart is a love for even our enemy. David mourns Saul's death. He doesn't kill Ishbosheth, who is this little puppet king, this other son of, of Saul. He, he lets him ride out his reign and let God deal with his enemy. Love your enemies. He's devoted to prayer. That's the mark of a patient heart is devotion to prayer. David's Psalms are filled with that, devoted to prayer. Listens to wise counsel. We're filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Christ's Spirit in us builds, grows patience that allows us to hang on to Christ, to his promises, walk with him when it's hard. A mark of a patient heart is we trust and believe with all our heart that God is good even when life isn't and that he's in control and that his promises are true when we haven't yet had a taste of them. So let me go back to that question. Have you ever considered the cost personally in your life to your impatience, to mine? 
So when we were first married, let me tell you the story. Um, I uh, was a student at seminary. Lori's putting me through school. We were just really poor but happy in love. And I decided, hey, I'm going to get another job over Christmas uh, that season at UPS from the 10 o'clock at night to the 2 o'clock in the morning shift, make a little extra money to help out. It was a Friday night. Lori and I couldn't afford tickets to the concert, but we heard you could go to the concert if you were uh, willing to volunteer as an usher. We'll usher. We did. Got everybody seated. Then the usher seats, unfortunately, were in the first row, which was great until the concert went late. And I couldn't get up in the middle of this concert. And so when the concert ended and I was late, I bolted out of that room and ran to my car. It's a December night. It got cold. The windshields all frosted up. But hey, man, I had to get to work. I didn't want to lose that job. I didn't have time to scrape the window. So I jumped in, turned on the engine. I got the defrost on high. I got the windshield wipers. And I'm just like leaning over my steering wheel, looking through a little hole that's like about this big. And I'm remembering, all right, all right, there's a guard shack coming up. So make sure you give a little room for the guard shack. And I'm just kind of coming around the guard shack. Can't see anything, right? Can't see the guard shack, but I know it's coming up here soon. And the next thing I know, bam! There's a whole line of parked cars that are never parked at this particular section of the road unless there's a concert, I guess. And I smacked into that. And I put my head up into the windshield so that when Lori came up to the scene of the accident and I'm off somewhere to the side calling the, the tow truck trying to figure out what to do, she looks at the windshield and she's going, I bet you I just became a, wi a widow because she could see the imprint of my head. You see, because I didn't have time to scrape the window, I couldn't see the big picture of what was ahead of me. And impatience keeps us from seeing the goodness of God. It keeps us from seeing the way that he wants us to go. It keeps us from seeing how God is in control and able to use even terrible things for good in our life. I wonder what our impatience is costing us. For Saul, it wasn't just the throne. It just, it just did rifts through his own family. Saul and his son, Jonathan, Saul and his daughter, Michael, is huge. What is impatience costing us? Let me say a word. I've been thinking about the people in our church who, like David, have been enduring suffering. And there's all different kinds, including this very personal, relational kind of suffering. And you're in our lives. And we see you staying under the weight of that trial, believing in the goodness of God, trusting his promises, and knowing that he's going to do good things in the midst of bad things, and not allowing your heart to get bitter, but to get better. And I just want to say, bless you. 
Bless you for reminding us of the power of Christ in a person's life. Bless you for helping us understand the prize and worth of Christ. Bless you for modeling to us and strengthening our own faith so that in our times of hard times, we know that you know and your encouragement and your example are huge in our life. What would it look like in Dane County for a group of Christ followers from Door Creek to love and trust Jesus, to love our enemies when things are hard and people are trying to take us out. Let me just say, it could be and would be the most powerful of witnesses to our great God and his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us endurance. Give us encouragement and strength and your attitude, Lord Jesus, so that with one mind and one voice, so that together, whether in good times and especially through the difficult times of suffering, we would glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. For your glory alone. Amen.